The Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss Episode 65 Etiquette Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And tonight's theme is etiquette. So instead of our normal tonic screwdriver where we're reviewing a gin, what we have this time is we have a gin and Dubonnet. That's lovely. (laughs) Well, this is new to the scene, so I will uh, give it a whirl. I'm not. I've been around a while. That's quite potent. Mmm. Oh, it carries a kick. It doesn't necessarily taste like it. I don't know. That that smacks you in the chops. Does it? Mmm. Maybe my chops are more used to being smacked around than yours. But for me, it could do with a, a drop of ice. So bear with me and I will ice mine. Could have done that after we finished talking about it. But never mind. I will carry on blethering about this. It's a lovely... Bollocks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Are we having fun? Yes. I'd offer to come and help, but frankly, I can't no, be asked. Really, don't. Don't trouble yourself. I wasn't going to. Right, I'm now suitably iced, so I shall give it another go. Hmm. It's not altered the taste, one I also, but the temperature is much more acceptable to me. For me, that would be quite a slow, long drink. I don't think I could neck that at sort the speed I neck gin. No, it, it, it's almost got a sort of porty flavour yes, to it, it hasn't has. it? Yes, it has. Um, or actually more a, a really good quality slow gin. Or just high ABV, neat Vimto. You can take the artistry out of anything, <laughs> can't you? I can. There's nothing that's off limits. <laughs> uh, we'll stick with porty. It is quite porty, yeah. Mm. But the Queen Mother's favourite tipple. Apparently. I mean, not now, obviously. Well, it can't have done her any harm. I'm 102. Maybe this is the secret, to the royal family's secret we just stumbled across here. I can't say it would knock the gin off my uh, top slot, but as a... No, it, as, a, it, as a drink, it's very nice. It's it's a nice long drink. Um, I'll quite often have it of a Friday evening. It's a nice relaxing drink. It's not really a sort of you come in from a crappy day at work and you want something to mm. hit the spot and calm you down. I don't think this this would do that. This is a once you're home and chilled and ready for a nice relaxing evening in front of the telly that or whatever. So, yes. um, then that would hit the spot, but. I think if you're coming in from work and a bit... Mm, yeah, yeah, either wine or gin first. Gin. No, don't get me wrong. I like mm. wine. But if I'm if I'm wanting something to, to calm me down, that'd be a nice gin and tonic. Well, while we're feeling all calm and relaxed in front of a nicely roaring fire, Dubonnet and gin, what are we thinking in terms of Bernard's? Um, well, I really like it. I, I find it a very smooth and easy to drink drink. So all of that together, I'm going to give it a five out of five Bernard's. Good grief. Right. Um, for me, I'm less keen on it. I will give it a three. Um, it's not entirely to my taste, but I wouldn't say no if it was plonked in front of me. Well, you didn't. I didn't. This is etiquette and I am known for my good manners. Would be rude to say no. What is the first in our etiquettes? It will come as no surprise that we're going to watch Keeping Up Appearances. What a surprise. And we're going to watch the very first episode of the first season, which is called Daddy's Accident, from the 9th of October, 1990. For our friends in America who don't know what Keeping Up Appearances is, it's a half-hour sitcom about a very pretentious woman called Hyacinth, who's married a bloke called Mr. Bucket, but she insists on pronouncing it bouquet. 
and she comes from a working class family that she's embarrassed by. And well, they're not just working class; they're rough as fuck. That's another way of putting it. Because I'm working class, but I'm not rough as fuck. I like to think they well. <laughs> <laughs> Rishton is as Rishton does. Anyway. Oh, actually, I know how much the people of Rishton can complain, because oh, I saw some of the emails that you used to get when you were a councillor. They can moan with the best of them, kick one, and they limp for towns around. As with any sitcom, there are there's an extended cast of characters, and this includes the next-door neighbours that Hyacinth is always trying to improve and educate. She is obsessed with etiquette. She is very proud of her upwardly mobile sister. Is that one Violet? Violet's the one, the one that you never see. We never see Violet, yep, no. because... Violet doesn't really seem to want to have anything to do with Hyacinth. Um, but no, keeping up appearances, I do actually remember this one when it was first broadcast, for a very bizarre reason. It was the day... It was the day that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game had just come out on the ZX Spectrum, and that was the day I got it. There's a bizarre memory, but it's lodged in my head as being the first episode of Keeping Up Appearances, because I watched it that night. Mm. Nothing to do with the episode, but uh, play on, McDuff. We, we never had a ZX Spectrum. I had a ZX81. I was so proud of that. So, so proud of that. My granddad made it it a special little wooden box to... To live in. Yeah. I don't have the ZX81 anymore, but I've still got the wooden box. My granddad was a cabinet maker. Mm. Um, And actually, Royal Connection, he did a lot of the cabinet making on the Royal Yacht Britannia was refit in the 1950s or whatever. So my mum has been to the, the Royal Yacht and seen some of the stuff that my granddad did. Oh, another connection for you. You should have a book of these connections. Oh, well, you've got them podcasted now. Yeah. Logged for yes. all time. There we go. Welcome to the 21st century. On the interweb. Yes. With a quill pen. Honourable mentions to Who alumni, um, as we always do. Uh, Judy Cornwell, who plays one of Hyacinth's sisters, was obviously Maddie, Maddie. in Paradise, Paradise Towers. A little less cannibalism in this episode, I hope. Just um, um, apart from the candlelit supper. And for the second time today, we're going to see Peter Sellier. Oh, he's the... He was um, Andrews in Time Flight. Yeah, but it, no, he's, is he the major in this or something? Well, we'll see. Yes. And Clive Swift, who was Joe Bell and Mr. Copper. It did run a long time, this series. It was comfortably 10 years, I think. I don't know. It's just one of those ones that I remember being on in the background. I was Yeah. I, it was one of those, I would watch it and enjoy it when it was on. But not actively but seek I'd, it But I'd out. not make a point of, of seeking it out. For me to do that, sitcoms have to be have that little touch of weird black books or something like that. Right. Well, let's travel back in time to 1990 and see what it was like. Roll VT. Right, well, that was episode one of Keeping Up Appearances, the very first one. It was exactly as I remember it. Yeah, I haven't seen one of those in years. They're really entertaining. Um, It's like when we talked about Dad's Army and it just being a comforting blanket of sitcom. You know what you're going to get. It's typical Roy Clark. Yeah, there are a number of set pieces built around a vague plot. And the set pieces are, are fun. It's Hyacinth scaring Elizabeth into breaking something and... Onslow being slobby and burping and something leaping out of the fence or something being chucked into the hedge. It's Richard being henpecked. It's all marvellous. It's all very entertaining. I don't think I could back-to-back watch them. No, because they're all very repetitive. It's it's Last of the Summer Wine Syndrome. It's uh, They are all basically the same characters, catchphrases, situations, 
dressed up differently each week. But again, as we said with Dad's Army, as we said with the War Games, these TV programs were never designed no, for were. binge watching. No. Something like Game of Thrones, if you like that. Um, Never seen a one yet. I'm waiting until it's finished and then I'm going to binge watch the whole thing. Oh, uh, prepare to be disappointed. Really? I, I hated it. To be fair, I know loads of people whose taste I absolutely respect who love it. Because of that, I've watched the pilot episode four times. I've watched the the first six episodes. If there's something I'm really trying to get into, I will always give it six episodes because I think that's when it... If it hasn't hit its stride by then, it isn't going to. Mm. I have never tried as hard to like a TV series ever. And I still don't. And I've been to King's Landing. I've, I've been to Dubrovnik. I've walked around. With, it's basically a Game of Thrones theme park these days. But I mean, it's, it's a beautiful city. There are nicer walled cities in Croatia and Montenegro that aren't Game of Thrones theme parks. But Game of Thrones does absolutely nothing for Game me. of Thrones theme park. I only comment on that because my only experience so far of Game of Thrones is a bad lip reading video on YouTube. If nobody's familiar with bad lip reading, look up the channel on YouTube. It takes very popular stuff. Uh, the guy who runs the channel I think the story is his mother was deaf but he couldn't understand sign language so he was reduced to lip reading and he used to get it fantastically wrong or she or something like that so they they lip sync perfectly stuff like Star Wars and Donald Trump President Obama political rallies and they've done Game of Thrones but they've done Game of Thrones as a theme park medieval theme park land where they're selling hot dogs and running... <laughs> it's, it's beautifully done, but I expect not terribly representative of the programme. I'm the wrong person to talk to about Game of Thrones <laughs> because there are so many people who like it, there has to be good stuff about it. Mm. To me, it's just complete, pure character-driven with no real fantasy elements to it, apart from a little flitting dragon around the place. Mm. It's a soap opera, but it's a soap opera with swords and dragons, and the swords and dragons are they the less important part of it. I'll and let I'm you not, know when I get there. I'm not particularly interested in soap operas. Uh, I have exactly the same argument against Water of Mars, because what plot that has is completely character-driven. The, the, the whole weird water, whatever the hell is going on with that, you never get an answer to. Dragging it back one planet to Hyacinth Bouquet... I got onto the Water of Mars rant again. Yeah, you did. It happens. Little too frequently, actually. (laughs) Okay, dragging it back to Hyacinth Bouquet. It is all right. I very much enjoyed that. It was a nice little nostalgia trip for me back to the early 90s. It did remind me, though, of everything, or all the reasons why I did not religiously watch it, because... Patricia Routledge, brilliant though she is, is only as good as the script she's given, and it does require her to be a little bit too far overblown for my liking. But it's a sitcom, and yeah. sitcoms are often based around caricatures. I mean, we were talking about the British Empire. Yes, right. And Gordon Brittus is an absolute oh. caricature. Anybody who had to spend any time at all with him would <laughs> would kill him. Um, oh, Gordon Brittus, played by Chris Barry. That is definitely on the list for the future. That. It's one of my very favourite sitcoms, and that is one that I can binge watch because yeah. it is just hilarious and ridiculous and 
when one of the series of it was on, I can't remember which, but uh, I was living in a, a squat in Newcastle and we didn't have a telly. You were squatting? Yeah. I've done a lot of things. You're like an onion. You just peel off layer by layer every time I meet you. It's meant as a compliment. Yeah. It was while I was doing my master's degree and I I paid all the money I had to the, for the fees to do the master's degree. So I didn't really have money to live. So I, I went and lived in a squat for a year. It was fine. <laughs> We had running water, we had electricity every so often. We didn't have a telly, so I used to have to go to friends' houses to watch the telly. And there were two programmes I used to uh, make a point of going to see, and one of them was the British Empire. The the other one was Tales of the City, which was based on a a wonderful series of books by Armistead Mopau. It was a really great TV adaptation. And... Go on. Well, I've, I've had quite a bit of this gin and jabonet, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. But with my medical head on, please do not do what I'm just about to tell you that I, I used to do. Because didn't have very much money. But I was in my 20s, so I used to like going out. So my housemates and I used to make up this sort of... We used to call it cocktail. Where, um, Did it have petrol in it? Not quite. It was a bottle of Netto Sherry, bottle of lemonade, and a bottle of Benelin. Jesus Christ. And we'd drink that between four of us and then go out and you only needed a couple of pints on top of that to be absolutely flying. I think it's what's referred to in the modern era as pre-drinks. Yeah, the Benelin means that it's not entirely a drink drink. Moving please, please, on. at home, do not try this. It, it's not a safe or healthy thing to do. Please um, get an adult to help you drink your Benelin. <laughs> Technically, I was an adult at the time. What have we got next? I don't know how we've got from Hyacinth the case of Benelin abuse. Benelin abuse? We didn't use a lot of it. I mean, it was only one bottle, you know, a pint of sherry and a bucket load of... No, it wasn't really a bucket load. <laughs> Dubonnet, get me out of this. Come on, next. Right. What's okay. next on the list? Next, we have a wonderful, wonderful TV series that I absolutely love from sometime in the 90s, and I've written it down, but I can't be bothered to look at it, starring... Joanna Lumley. Uh, uh, it's the second Joanna Lumley of the day. Mm-hmm. This, I think, is unfamiliar to you. It's it a, is. I don't... It's a um, TV Is this program. an ITV thing? Yes. Ah, uh, well then... Oh, did, I, we, did we not watch ITV? It was just far below my social standing. I, I know we did. We watched lots of ITV in the late 80s, early 90s, but this, I don't think... It's class act, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. I, Do I, you know, a lot of people talk about the whole ITV-BBC <laughs> divide thing. We never had that. In the squad. I was thinking about when I was growing up at home. Uh, we didn't have a telly in the squad, so the, that that point was a little moot. No, because I, I, I watched plenty of, of ITV, not so much sitcoms, but those Sunday night things. Sunday night was ITV, so Flying Lady, Sherlock Holmes, all that sort of thing. Was this when was this sort of? I no idea, because this was actually while I was in the squad. I think. No. So I, I've caught up with it. So I was caught up with it subsequently. <laughs> I was stabbing wildly in the dark. I just happened to be accurate when I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the premise of this is... The premise of this is um, Kate Swift is a very self-centred socialite who is married to a crook who gets killed in the first episode. And while he was married to her, he's persuaded her to do all sorts of dodgy, dodgy deals for which she gets sent to prison for six months. She comes out of prison, teams up with an Australian cat burglar that she was in prison with and the journalist who exposed her crimes and subsequently lost his job as a result of it to try and expose who it is who who set her up. And it turns out to be her lawyer. Uh, before you ruin this plot anymore, can we watch the thing? Ah. Yeah. Run V2.
that was episode one of a class act. Oh, a class act. I actually, I can't believe I've missed out on that. I really, really enjoyed that. It, it's great, isn't it? It's probably even better if you're not told who the film is from the, before the start. But, <laughs> but to be fair... At the end of the day, it's a 20-year-old programme. Yeah. If you haven't watched it before now, it really is your look at it. Yeah, spoilers. They don't, they're off they're off piece actually. This gin and Dubonnet really does take the break off, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so well done, boys, on that. No, I, I loved that because I thought that the mix of characters, it was very clearly on the cusp, late 80s, early 90s, when there was still that Australian fever going around. So they've crowbarred in an Australian character. And the, one of the things I like about it is that the strong, confident, capable characters in the the trio of leads are the women. Mm. The bloke, the, the journalist, is there as comedy this is why I've got a bit of a beef with the whole strong women roles thing that they're all obsessed with at the minute. Yeah, but this was 20 years ago. No, 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 but if you look at the history of the stuff that we watch, I mean, you, you scattergun stuff at me completely at random. Pretty much everything we watch goes totally against this idea that there is, there's never been any strong female roles. and It's about bloody time we had more women leads. The, the stuff that you bring along that I've never seen before. You're not doing this deliberately. They're just lit peppered with strong characters. Yes, but bear in mind, I cut my teeth on Servalan and Leela, and I have a real thing about drag queens, so... I'm still calming down from Elvira, and it is nearly two o'clock in the morning. Okay, so, this so is a little more detail than I need. Don't rev up the engine. Drag queens are revving up the engine. Not drag queens, Elvira. It oh, was not more... Leela or Servalan. Let's dial it back. Let's dial it back. I just don't think that... Because we've had the, conversations about lack of underwear on both of those. The point I was trying to make is that I don't think television has been as devoid of strong female characters as everyone would like to make out, because there's so much TV out there. Even if you boil it down to something like Coronation Street, right back in the 1960s... Oh, Ina Sharple. I loved Ina Sharple. She was a fantastic character. And, um, oh, who was... Who's the war bride in Coronation Street? Right from the very beginning. Amy uh, Sharples, Minnie Caldwell. Um, no, 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 no. The younger one. I want to say Pat Priest, but that was the. Oh, Pat Phoenix. The, Pat um, Phoenix, yes. Pat Priest was the first um, Marilyn Munster. Yes, she was. God, who did she play in Coronation Street? Elsie Tanner. Elsie Tanner. I am a big fan of that. They showed the first episode of Coronation Street on the 60th anniversary. I think the first episode of Coronation Street is one of my favourite pieces of TV. I've got a, a copy of it here. I love it. Just because it's raw, unadulterated terrace street and everything about living in a terrace in those... And to be quite honest, I live in, we're recording a terrace house for the majority of the time. Terrace streets are still like that. Everybody knows everybody else's business. There's a shop at the end of the road. The north of England is still pretty much as it was. It's nothing like Coronation Street is now. This multicultural idea where... So the 60s Coronation See, I don't Street. think I've seen an episode, a new episode of Coronation Street for about 10 years. Uh, periodically, I'll catch a snippet of it on TV. I did actually see, because my ex-wife was very much into the soaps, I saw the last episode with Jack Duckworth, and you felt a part of that era of Coronation Street die, and it was the beginning, because he was the last anchor to the past. The last soap opera I used to regularly watch 
was El Dorado. Oh, shit a break. And actually, <laughs> it was while I was working with Andy from Round the Archives. So 92, 93? Yeah, couldn't have cared less about it at the beginning. When it came to the end and they knew that they were going to be shut down. And they, they hurled all the money at the last episode. No, they just started killing off the cast in really entertaining ways. It was... That final six weeks or so was really entertaining. And there were... <laughs> I remember Marcus Tandy getting blown up in a car. That was in the last episode. And the Spanish bloke who was in the closet got electrocuted in the bath. One of them took a drug overdose, one of them drowned. There were a whole load of them. We used to have, we had a poster on our lab wall of all the characters. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got this image of a, of a police... Uh, it's like an episode of Death in Paradise where they get a big red marker pen across the... We were on etiquette. Uh, we were on Class Act, and I was going to talk about Joanna, <laughs> Joanna Lumley's um, portrayal in Class Act. She is just this wonderfully amoral, selectively foul-mouthed character. She's she's, she's, not, the, she's not the caricature that Patsy in Absolutely mm. Fabulous was, because she was just pretty blonde drunk yeah. who gets unpleasant when she's pissed and she's never sober. Kate Swift is intelligent. Oh, she has such well-structured insults. Oh, what was that one she called? You've the, you've yeah, you've the lo- little turd and you have the backbone of a Frenchman. Yes, that um, was the one that you... You're lower than a head. snake's duodenum. It, it was all... Oh, it was marvellous. But she's got a real backbone to her when that stable hand gets shot and everybody else runs away. She's the one that runs towards him, make yeah. sure that he's okay. She's the one that goes after the uh, the gunman with the, with the shotgun. So she's got a pair on her. The, the, the whole um, production credit list is littered with... Uh, Michael Aitken's the writer. He was he wrote Waiting for God, and indeed the guy who gets shot, whose name I can't remember, but he was a character in Waiting for God. He played Reverend Dennis. The and producer was produced is by Verity, Verity Lambert. Lambert. Cinema Verity. This was ninety four, wasn't it? I don't think it was that late. I think it was ninety two. Yeah, but it went for two years. Yeah. Wasn't it one of the last things that she did? I think Kavanaugh QC was the last thing that she did. Right. And this would have been before that. We really should do an adventure in space and time at some point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic piece of TV. Tie that in with Twice Upon a Time. Scratch tomorrow's viewing list. That's what we're doing. Yeah, no, let's not do that. (laughs) Any excuse to watch Twice Upon a Time. I love that. Yeah, I'm so disappointed they didn't put those reconstructions into the uh, the extras. Anyway, we're getting we are getting away. We're, get, we're getting into the into who territory. I haven't seen Class Act for a good few years. I've, I've seen each episode yeah. multiple times. I thoroughly enjoy it. I'd forgotten quite how much I thoroughly enjoy it. So poor Alan may be getting lumbered with watching a load of Class Act. <laughs> um, he's disappearing off for a, um, for work sometime fairly soon. So I'll I'll binge watch some Class Act. Yeah, just in case you want why we end up spending a periodical weekends just sitting watching archive television we do try and coincide it with uh, our partners being uh, away so that we're not tying up weekends uh, my partner is currently with a family in norfolk and ellen is bitching about the fact that i'm not at home they don't always tie in i'm halfway to glasgow to do a week's work so so what is next on the menu tonight etiquette wise i can't remember is it not jeeves and Worcester? it may be in fact, I think it is. <laughs> let me let me check my list. Yes, 
the first episode of Jeeves and Worcester with Stephen Fry, because well, I know you're a fan. I am, yes. Um, I have not seen this for a very long time, probably I, since transmission. No, and neither have I. I'm, I'm actually just really looking forward to the yeah. one that comes after that, which would, which is Terence Rathbun's Terence separate Rathbun. tables. But Jeeves and Worcester first, which I, I do like and I am looking forward to. Well, I'm going to pause you there before you spoil it. Thing. Shall we just run VT and see what happens before you give me the plot? I can't remember the plot of this one. Let's watch the video. Engage. Well, that was the very first episode of Jeeves and Worcester, the ITV series with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie from 1990, was it 91? Uh, 1990, ran till 93. That was a slice of wonder, that. I loved that. <laughs> very much my era. Everything, from, right from the start of the opening titles, it's all very Art Deco, uh, 1920s and... It looks wonderful. Yeah. Um, the two leads put in very entertaining performances. Mm. Actually, everybody puts in entertaining yeah, performances. I've never been a massive fan of P.G. Woodhouse. I appreciate it very much of its time, but the plots are incredibly staged. Mm. This episode is all about Bertie's being told that he, there's somebody he has to marry and he tries to palm her off onto somebody else by making the, the other one look like a, um, a hero rescuing her, her brother and it goes wrong and Bertie ends up rescuing the brother so she she starts to get keen on him and then there's a whole disastrous dinner party where Jeeves has accidentally on purpose booby-trapped his bedroom with a load of cats and happens to know that they're terrified <laughs> of cats and uh, the potential father-in-law's hat gets stolen earlier in the day and the hat ends up in Bertie's flat and then it's all very very contrived it's entertaining but it's the performances that make it entertaining because the plot is really a bit rubbish um I can see yeah I mean I take your point about the the plot being a little thin but those were the books really they were all the flimsiest of plots this has been expanded to you know padded this out to an hour but everything about it is entertaining Stephen Fry is perfect as Jeeves and he's not far off with Bertie Wooster. And Stephen Fry, you get the impression he's playing Stephen Fry. Yes, he is. Um, and pretty much always does. Hugh Laurie has a fantastic range as an actor. Mm, he, he, goes, he goes from this to... House. Uh, house. And very good accent work. Because with, with House, you wouldn't be, you really couldn't tell that he's not American. Not that I'm an expert on American accents, but it fools the Americans who presumably recognise American accents when they hear them. And he's also a very talented musician. He's released several albums. This doesn't really demonstrate that. It doesn't. There, no, there is a, a point where he sings. I assume it's a bit like the Les Dawson bad play yes. by somebody who knows what they're doing. No, he's got a very good voice that he's very much played for the character. There's a good cast in it, and the production values are lovely. They've really made the effort to go to locations where it's going to be... Yeah, it, it looks fantastic. Period. I mean, visually, it's very similar to the David Suchet's Poirot. Yes. And presumably uses some of the, the same locations to get the same effect. But this was a Sunday night, late evening, sort of eight o'clock thing. It, it was in the Poirot slot, I think. And the Sunday night slot was just easy watching, really, mm-hmm. which this is. Everything about it is all uh, style over substance. You get a lot of shots of the elaborate props, the silver trays, the way things are served, uh, the tools and implements around the home at the time. And it just all feels very lavish, even though they're only really... Serving fried egg with a spoon, that seemed a bit odd. But that's how it was served. Really? Yes. Not, not one of those flippy things. No. And in a lot of hotels, you still get fried eggs served with a spoon. 
It's not what they do in Wetherspoons. It is. Spoons don't. Um, they're, they're very modern. I'm not going to slight Wetherspoons. I love Wetherspoons. I think what they do with old oh, The one that the ones in Glasgow do Haggis Pizza, which is fantastic. Really? Yeah, it's lovely. Ooh. Really lovely. Well worth trying if you're ever up in Scotland. Why don't we get Haggis Pizza? I love that. Scottish. It should be... That should move down south, and real cider should move up north. Well, it doesn't. Um, and I don't know, the Welsh get daffodil on toast or something. Clawing it back to Jeeves and Worcester. <laughs> I, I just thought that was chewing gum for the eyes. I would love to see a little bit more. I've, I've not seen these since they were first transmitted, and at the time it was just an excuse not to do my homework on a Sunday night. I wasn't really that interested. Now I would watch it because I would like to see more of that. And, I mean, the other thing about the parallel between this and Poirot is that they were a lot of them were adapted by the same person. Yes, they were, yeah. Uh, the name of whom escapes me. Clive Exton. Clive Exton, that's the one. Yes, the only person I've heard with your surname. Apart from well, you. he's not a proper Exton. Do give us the biography then. <laughs> no, he was, born, he was born Clive Brooks and started off his career as an actor. And at that time, equity rules said that you couldn't have two registered actors That's with the right. same name. And there was an actor by the name of Clive Brooks. So he registered under the name of Clive Exton from the I think it's Sir Piers of Exton in one of Shakespeare's plays. And because that's the way where he became known, he actually changed his name by deed poll. But he's not a born and bred Exton. Um, ah, pretender to the crown then. And he, he was much better known as a, a playwright. He was one of the, the more innovative of the armchair theatre authors in the uh, in the 60s. And then, then became more mainstream. He did things like this, and Rosemary and Time and Poirot and all good... Good, well-crafted stuff, but really quite mainstream. Did a few plays as well. And the final play he did before he died was something called uh, Barking in Essex. It's a very good play. It um, had Lee Evans, Keely Hawks, a couple of other, other mm. good names in it. And because of the name connection, I took my parents to see it in London, thinking that it would be something like this and a bit gentle and not particularly offensive. Now, you've not met my folks, have you? No. I, I know you've met my sister, but mm. you've not met my folks. Your mum looks like a riot. Oh, she is. She's grateful. Yeah. Um, but very, 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 very anti-swearing. Really? Yeah. And considering she she used to work as a forensic doctor in the police cells, she was surrounded by effing and blinding all the time from both the um, the prisoners and from the uh, the staff. And she's still there. Sam and I can still never get away with swearing in her presence. Alan can. Alan's Mr. Golden Bollocks, but I can't. Anyway, the opening of Barking in Essex is for about two minutes, just all the principal characters shouting the word cunt at each other. Right. <laughs> and we uh, there was my, me, my parents, and Alan, and we we just had dinner. And we went in, and we were greeted by this. And I was certain that my mother was just going to get up and walk out. Now it turns out that um, she she'd investigated the play a little bit, or had, no, she'd seen an interview with one of the actors who just said it's a really good play, but there is a deliberate shock value at the front with the amount of swearing. Alan was trying to bury himself in the in the chair. I daren't look at her because it, I was so close to corpsing with laughter. It wasn't true. And that would have just made the situation worse. And when, it, when I sort of stole a glance out of the corner of my eye, she was killing herself laughing. But she wasn't laughing at what was going on in the place. She was, was a situation. She was you, laughing yeah. at how uncomfortable it made the two of us. And when I was a teenager, we lived quite close to where Clive Exton lived in uh, in Bournemouth. And it was the, the days of um, video rentals. So oh I, went, I went and joined the video rental shop around the corner. I uh, gave my name and the bloke behind the counter said, oh, are you Superman's brother-in-law? I said, 
very odd question to ask. I think uh, Clive Exton's daughter was dating Christopher Reeve at the time. What a tangled web you weave without even knowing it. I mean, that's all all down to the name. I've <laughs> I've never actually met anybody with, uh, who shares my surname that I'm not related to. Mm. What's our final etiquette? Okay, so the final thing that we're going to see in our etiquette show is a 1970 adaptation of Terence Rattigan's Separate Tables. It was in the BBC Play of the Month strand and was transmitted on March the 15th, 1970. Terence Rattigan's a very old school playwright. He was very popular just after the war, sort of 1940s, 1950s. And that, that's when Separate Tables comes from. That was so at the height of his popularity in the mid-1950s. Probably the best thing he's known for now is The Wilmslow Boy, mm. which was done as a film a few years ago. He's had a few sort of recurrences on the London stage. I think French Without Tears was done within the last few years and, and The Deep Blue Sea. Anyway, the one that we're going to watch is Separate Tables. Which I'm not familiar with. Um, which was always advertised as two plays in one because there, there are two completely separate story strands. We'll say a bit more about the contents of those strands after we've watched the episode. Cause Seems reasonable, yes. Because I, I don't want to spoiler things again. <laughs> well, I like Terence Rattigan, so uh, let's uh, run VT and see what it's like. We have sat here for over an hour and a half, barring me asking you if you want a gin top-up, in absolute silence. That was marvellous. A really interesting thing is that the two female leads were both played by Geraldine McEwen. Yes. There are two separate strands in this, both linked by the fact that it's set in a... A Bournemouth hotel. A Bournemouth hotel. What we probably call a boarding house, although a slightly posher one, because... The, these are all long-term residents. But that, um, was, that was not uncommon. But now you call it a boarding house because it, it, it is more Yes, it's a problem, yes. And the, the separate tables of the title is that although all these people have known each other for years, they have their dinner in the dining room at separate tables. And mm-hmm. the only two that, that sit together are a husband and wife. And a mother and daughter. Oh, yes, and the, the mother and daughter. But even though they, they have social relationships to, to everybody there and they, they're talking to each other from across the, the room, they all have their own separate table. And there are two strands of, of stories. Lots of Terence Rattigan stuff is about sort of secrets and uncovering of secrets and, and what effect that has on um, the relationships of people in the play. And then in the first strand, one of the residents is a, a socialist journalist who's actually living there under an assumed name. And he's actually a disgraced ex-MP who went to prison for getting drunk and assaulting his wife. The wife turns up um, in one of the roles played by Geraldine McEwen and they end up having a reconciliation when he realises that it's a, a deliberate ploy on her part. Then he gets upset about that, storms out, gets fairly heroically slaughtered and sleeps in a bus shelter and then, then comes back the next day with the intention of leaving. Um, she turns up with the purported intention of leaving and they have a few very dramatic monologues to camera and decide to give things another go, even though they know fine rightly that it's very unlikely to work. I'm just going to stop you there. Before we go on to what you've rightly described as the second play, mm. can we digest the first half? Yes, um, of course. The, 
Just the way it was bounced around in the first half, I thought it would be two separate story strands. It really was two separate halves, which were completely different from one another, really. Yeah. They are both at heart love stories, broken heart love stories, on both halves of the play. Yes. It was very clear from the off in part one that, or act one rather, that they both had this love for one another. Despite being divorced eight years, it was still very much there. But they were both lying to themselves. And indeed, that's that's true of the second half, which we'll come on to in a minute. But it's two people who have split up, who didn't really want to split up, and have regretted it later down the line. Whether it's right or wrong that they're a couple, or whether they are well-suited or not, is another matter. But two people that desperately love one another that have split up anyway, um, because it's seen to be the right thing to do, or circumstances have forced it, or whatever. Yeah, and you know, in put it in slightly less flowery and staged language, and this could be a plot in EastEnders or Coronation Street today. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, yes. Although EastEnders is it's a visual depressant. But I walk in and I watch within 30 seconds of a couple declaring their love for one another, one of them will be a snotty-nosed mess in tears on the carpet because it's all gone horrifically wrong. The entire cast of EastEnders must have shares in Kleenex because that's all they do is cry. So this is done in a much more um, artistic way and I think on balance I would far rather watch the Vatican play. Yes, and the same plot on a soap opera would probably be dragged out over months, whereas, <laughs> whereas in this we got it in 45 minutes. Yes, 45 beautiful minutes, I hasten to add. Yeah. The way that they stage it is very nicely done because there's your two separate story strands with major characters in each, but all the supporting characters under underpin each strand. Mm. Less so in the first one. That's very much a, a three-hander. It's the divorced couple and the manageress of the hotel. Yes. She's had a relationship with the man, both of them knowing that it's not really going to go anywhere. Yes. Uh, and she's the one that really pushes the two of them back together because she recognises that they should be back together. Um, and if that were any standards, then... There'd be a lot of thrown crockery and some, probably somebody falling down the stairs yeah, and, and it ended would, up it with would, getting hit by a car. There would be very, very much, I'm doing this even though I don't want to, and there'd be tears before bedtime, whereas Annette Crosby playing the, the part of the, um, the manageress, and she has quite a big part to play. She in, does, yeah. In both of the mm. strands of the play, and she... Pivotal. She's the main character yes. that, uh, that crosses over between the two. But she's the one that gets them back together again because she recognises that whatever her feelings in the situation, the two of them should be should be together. Yes. And it's all done with terribly stiff upper lip. And it is, but you must you have to remember that this was written as a play, not a television Yeah, program. absolutely. And, and it, it involves an awful lot of playing to the audience. And, you know, this was shown in 1970, so almost 50 years ago. And it was done as a, a retrospective then. Mm. So this is a, a 65 year old play that we're, that we're watching. It's not, not at all surprising that it's old fashioned. I mean, the, the more surprising thing is that the first strand could be redone today and be seen as very modern. Yeah. Well, beyond the setting and a little yeah. bit of the language. Quite um, a lot of the language. Okay, they, quite a lot of the language. They, but the actual stories, and or as you just said, they're quite transposable. The the, in, the, the in, first one is. I'm not. I'm not sure that the second one is transposable. Oh, in modern terms, it's the equivalent of oh, somebody finding out on Facebook that somebody had been to prison for underage sex. I don't know. You take your pick, mm, yeah, and okay. it's all been suppressed, and then somebody finds a cutting on Facebook 
shares it in that particular village. And this person who was previously, nobody's really looked twice at or thought anything genuinely untoward yeah. of, suddenly becomes pilloried by all these moral high ground people. That, I mean, there are parallels yes. that you could make with modern situ- situations, yeah. but it, you couldn't do a direct transfer in the same way as you could with the original, uh, with, the, with the first half. The actual you'd, details you'd, of the you'd crime have to, gems, You'd yeah. have to alter the plot rather yeah. than just the language. So just to say a bit about the, the plot of the... Of the second, of the yeah, second, second act, uh, yes. There's a an old, probably not that old, probably some middle age. Well, the one with the uh, the fur. No, 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 the, the major. Yeah, late fifties, maybe. Yeah, a, a retired army major living in the uh, hotel who's very chatty and bluff and bluster. There is also a, a very domineering lady of a certain age, um, and her adult daughter who's completely under the thumb. Mm. The adult daughter played in this strand by Geraldine McGowan again. Two very strong performances. Could not be any different. I honestly thought that they were going to end up being uh, surprise sisters or something, but Geraldine McGowan demonstrating a wonderful versatility. Yeah, absolutely. And it turns out that the major has been up in court the week before. What was the... Indecently touching? The actual... Name given to the crime was behaving in a disrespectful manner in a cinema. Yeah. So he'd been touching up women in, in cinemas and one of, in a cinema and one of them had complained. Managers had got the police. They'd observed him doing similar things to a number of other women, um, who hadn't complained and he was arrested on leaving the cinema. It transpires that he wasn't a major. He wasn't in the regiment that he said he was in. He hadn't been to the the private school. So this whole persona was a flood of lies. And they, the other residents had been thinking that for a while, but hadn't hadn't actually said anything. This all brings it to a four. And the rather strict lady who was previously saying saying to her daughter, "Well, people have noticed that you're going for for long walks with the major, and you should should really be careful." Takes it upon herself to browbeat the other residents mm. into agreeing to ask the manageress to leave. They don't actually show you that conversation, no, um, which is a real pity because. That would have been a fun thing to watch. But it would have taken away the surprise at the desk when... Yes, absolutely. So um, the major had comes back to the hotel, is told by the lady's daughter that everybody knows about it, that this woman has, has seen it in the local paper, which the major had gone to a lot of trouble to try and avoid. She's made this enormous fuss about it, uh, has been to the, uh, the manageress, and they have a... A long discussion about how, basically describing social phobia. Yeah, along, yeah, along those yeah. lines, yes. And he says, "Well, I've, I've made the, the decision. I'm going to leave." Goes to the desk, and the manageress just says, "Well, before you say anything, I want to make it absolutely clear. I am not going to ask you to leave. Mm. You're welcome to stay here if you want to go. I understand, and I will make it as easy as possible to to find somewhere else for you to go to. We have other hotels in our in our chain. We can get you in, into there. I can make the call, or I can tell you the people to talk to." She is very, very supportive, and is also very supportive to the to Sybil, the Geraldine yes, McEwan's the character, the young um, girl. Yeah, she's a middle aged woman, but it's perfectly clear that this is undeclared love on both yeah. their parts. And then talks to the the major and basically saying, "This is going to be a horrible situation for you, whether you stay here, whether you go to another hotel." And okay, they're not going to know about what's what's gone on. But you're not going to be able to be this major being, being the major character that you've been playing. You're here and you're settled. Would it not be better to stay? And he's saying, oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. And then she says, I didn't mean for you. I meant for Sybil. Mm. And the the final 
scene in the play is where it, it echoes the first scene in the play where they're, they're all there for uh, in the dining room for dinner. The, the only ones who aren't there, the, the two characters from the, the first half of the play have, have gone off together and the major isn't there. And they're, they're having their normal, fairly stilted dinner conversation. And the major comes into the room, no longer dressed in his um, ex-military mm. gear, just dressed in a suit, and goes to his table. Nobody says anything. The waitress comes in and just chats away to him. Oh, sorry, didn't realise you are going to be here for dinner. We were told you were going to be out, but we'll get you, get you something sorted. Chats away while, while setting the table. And one by one, the other residents start talking to him again. Yes. It's very um, touching, actually. Yeah. Except for the woman and her daughter. Um, oh, and the, the wife of the couple, but she never really said very much. Anyway, she no, was she very much a, yeah. a background character. And this fairly steely-haired woman who really looked like something out of a hinge and bracket. <laughs> makes a point of saying, it's got very chilly in here. I'm just going to turn my chair to get yeah. out of the draft and deliberately turns her chair so she's back to him. Um, and then as the others start talking talking mm. to him, and it's obvious that she is the only one giving him the cold shoulder, she, she says, I, I will go to the lounge now and um, walks out and tells her daughter to come with her. And the daughter says, no, I haven't finished my dinner. I'm going to stay here and finish my dinner. And then there's a very nice moon out tonight. We should all go and have a look at it. And he's looking directly at the, at the mm. major while she says that. So it's obviously making um, a reconciliation with him. And it ends up that the one who is ostracised is the the woman who tried yeah. to ostracise ostracize him in the, the first place. It's a very... I mean, the, the end of that second act, I was welling up. That was a really lovely second half. I said to you... About two-thirds of the way through, I was enjoying the separate acts equally. I agree that the second act is... I have to be honest, when I suggested this, I'd completely forgotten about that first half of it. Yes. The only thing that I remembered was the, uh, the plot with the major. I mean, I, I recognise the feelings involved on both halves of that play, and I certainly recognise the, the characters. Regrettably, I, I recognise the holier-than-thou, nosy old bitch that has nothing better to do than stir up everybody else's shit with a big wooden spoon mm. and go looking for skeletons in closets when, basically, she's probably had a very boring life with not enough sex. And I have seen that character trope in a lot of real-life people that I've been surrounded by locally. I've made no secrets of that fact, but there are a lot of people out there who are far too interested in other people's lives purely because their own have been so fucking boring. And it's writ large on screen with that woman with the first stone. Her daughter, I also recognise the browbeaten offspring that haven't been allowed to develop because the parents have been so regimentally strict with how they live their life. It's a shame. It's a yeah, terrible and, shame. And often, I mean, it, it's a fairly cliched character that you get somebody who is browbeaten like that. And then the parent gets to the point where they're all needing look, looking yeah, after, so and the child stays to look after them, and they ends never live up life. on their own in their middle years and not really anywhere to go. And that, that's a fairly classic character. Mm. Like, it is, across yeah. A lot of literature because you see it quite a lot. But it's a lot in real life. It yeah. certainly is. It, it's. Yeah. I can ram off several examples off the top of my head. Interestingly, uh, Terence Rattigan was gay and was very troubled by that in his life. I didn't know that. Um, right. Ne- never had a. A long-term partner, although there were there was somebody whose name I can't remember that he he described as the best of companions or something like that. But he was never acknowledged, even in his later years, when when people like Noel Coward were acknowledging their sexuality. He never did. I'm not sure whether he was open about it or not. It was certainly something that that troubled him a lot. 
And the play was originally written where the crime that the um, major was accused of was uh, propositioning men. It was changed by Terence Rattigan because he didn't think it would ever be staged like that. Um, and certainly Tynan said of the play, this is about as far as the English audiences will accept. Mm. The other thing is that if you, my understanding from the 1950s is that if you were a man who was caught propositioning men, you didn't get away with the slap on the wrist that, oh, no, that he got. Oh, no, it was furious. It was until, well into the 60s, yes. But it was a custodial sentence. Mm. I think all that started to change with uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, the 59 case when everything started to be eroded in terms of what was considered a crime. I mean, that was, I think that was the first, certainly the first high profile case of literature being, if not, I can't remember whether it was actually outright banned, but it was certainly slapped with Mm. a a quarter. And you watch a, a shift in attitudes to sexuality shift quite rapidly after that. But before that, you'd had the Peter Wildblood stuff and the, the Wolfenden report mm, I think that yeah. came out in 57 and it was still 10 years after that oh, from where there was decriminalisation yes. partial de- decriminalisation mm. because the 67 act was consenting adults in the privacy of their own homes above the age of 21 I forget the detail yeah, well, yeah. Uh, you, you may know more about this though. a little bit yes. um, and I, I remember when I was at university when um, the age of consent came down from 21 to 18 it's three years to us. Mm. That doesn't sound a huge, huge deal when you when you're eighteen. When you're eighteen, it's, it's a yeah. massive goal. But the big thing that it did was decriminalise you, your university population. Mm. So, as I say, when I was at university, pretty much everybody who was an undergraduate, if they were gay and if they were actively taking part mm. in any kind of LGB group, they were admitting that they were breaking the law. Right. I, I mean, I can remember the factory I used to work at. Our local paper on a Thursday used to list the names and addresses of all of the people who'd been um, who'd been up in in court because you have to say that you had to say your name and address when you were uh, you were charged. And it was all listed. And there were an awful lot of people who highlighted their Thursday was looking through that list and seeing if there was anybody anywhere that they recognised. Regrettably, uh, that still goes on. I live in a small village. It still goes on. But the the police at the time were proactive about charging anybody under the age of 21. It didn't matter if both participants were under the age of 21. So if you had two two 19-year-olds caught together, they were both charged. Hmm. Thankfully, we, so we, we live in more enlightened times. We've drifted off the course a bit. And I think in the 1970s, there was an attempt to stage separate tables with the... Um, the original the, script. I don't think it even got as far as a, as a script. But uh, I, I think Terence Rattigan was always always admitted that that was the original, the original thought. And then... Not that I have anything against that as a, a theme in a play. I think it works better that he is just... Uh, it's a, a straight thing in this play, largely because he just comes across, and I think the rest of the characters see it, as a poor, lonely, old, middle-aged bastard. Yeah. He craves intimacy, but he can't find it anywhere, mm. and he's far too afraid to ask Sybil if they can become something more formal. It is plausible that she would find it in her heart to understand, forgive, whatever, and see him as a lonely old man that is just mm. desperate for love. If it had been portrayed as a lonely old man that had been soliciting men, you're into a different spectrum. It there would have been a, di- a different reconciliation. And yes, I see that. And you couldn't possibly at the time have had the elderly woman and her son in the same circumstance. 
Oh, I wasn't thinking that. Actually. I was thinking more. Well, that's the only, that's the only way a romance would work. It's the only way that that would work, but that would be a, for the time. Yeah, that would be a step too far. But with Sybil, she would not only have to accept that he's a lonely old bastard, but a lonely old bastard that actually likes men. And all of a sudden, I think the whole yeah. idea of a, a forgiving him in a romance disintegrates. Whereas with this situation, particularly with the other guests all chipping in and essentially glossing it over, yeah. um, it's more plausible. And yeah, for, for 1954, I don't think there was any other decision he mm. could have made. Interesting thing about Terence Rattigan. He always said that he wrote plays that his aunt Edna could go and see, who was a sort of <laughs> middle-aged, middle-class uh, woman of societally normal sensibilities at the time. And Joe Wharton had an alter ego who was Edna somebody or other, based completely on that. And Terence Rattigan and Joe Wharton were friends. And Terence Rattigan recognised the talent that Joe Wharton had and supported his early career mm. and went along to a lot of a lot of the premieres of his plays. Surprisingly, given my fondness for the theatre, I don't ever recall a play with a gay love story in it. Obviously, I'm discounting gay, a gay musical from the IT <laughs> But the only one I, I can... Wait, it's a, it is a musical, which I don't actually think very much of is Rent, which is, we've all got AIDS. And it's a bit of a laugh, actually. Uh, I, I never liked Rent. Um, Torch Song Trilogy? No, I'm not familiar with it. Boys in the Band? Nope, still not familiar with it. We may have to do some of these. I'm, you see, I'm very much more from the classic era of theatre. Modern... Boys, Boys in the Band was 1970. Right, a bit earlier than that. I'm from the coward era, Theo. That's where my... What, when it was illegal? Oh, well, you give up. Yeah, but there was... Enough, enough. I'm not familiar with any sort of gay love stories, it's, but it's certainly not through avoiding them. I think that this one, even if you did reinstate all that, I think it would make it a very awkward and unbelievable piece in that context. When we, when we do um, Armchair Theatre, which I want to do at some point, we'll do Afternoon of the Which you've been trying for years. I mean, I've, I've got two discs worth of Armchair Theatre somewhere. But now we're segueing quite a, a long way off. Never. Um, Not again. <laughs> so, overall, did you enjoy the, I uh, love the separate table? Yeah. Um, I, I said earlier on in this recording session that The Dummy, which was a Nigel Neal piece as part of the Beast series, that had been my favourite piece of this recording session. This has just eclipsed it. I adored that. The fact that we both sat here mute. Mm. I think it's excellent. I think it's a very good adaptation. I don't prefer it to the dummy, but I think it's very good. I think the thing that saves it is the the second half. I think the problem is I can relate to the first half. Mm. I've been there with somebody years in the past where I'm separated with someone and then they've come back and said, that was a terrible mistake. Can we give us another go? It does pull at the heartstrings when that happens, particularly if you still have feelings for that person. So both halves of that play I can relate to, but the, the second half was just marvellous. A joy from beginning to end, and anything that brings a tear to my eye. And I, I'm quite easy to make cry, but it, I, I do enjoy something that stirs an emotional response. Yes, that's good. Professor Quatermass's office. You're speaking. Is it something bad? So, with that, we shall bring our awfully well turned out etiquette episode to a. Should, should we mention the RP? Because well, there was an awful, awful lot of LP. It was an awful lot of I've RP. I've been to Paul Equatomass's elocution school. Yes, but they've not really pulled it off completely. 
Well, I the, don't think any of them would register more than a three on the Paula scale. Oh no, I, I, I think I think there was there was edging towards a fave. Um, I, I there was some back, telephone yes. acting. There was some telephone acting. Uh, first old woman was certainly a three, nudging towards a four. And Geraldine McEwan's first character, the model, oh, she was terribly, she was terribly, terribly happy. But nobody gets a six out of five like Paula. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Before all, we get letters, I'm all going to telephone s- answering service. <laughs> we should sign this off. Would you like to talk to one of the real characters? <laughs> oh, oh, we've already had complaints about the RP. Oh, ladies and gentlemen of the internet, thank you very much for joining us again for yes, our little joke. It has been great. It makes me want to put on my linen suit and get out a pipe and a pot of tea. You want to turn into the White Guardian? I can think of worse people to end up as in a wicker chair that travels through time. You see, I, uh, aesthetically, Black Guardian. No, with a dead, dead I, crow I on your head. without a crow on my head. Frankly, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but no, linen suit, it's a bit, it's a bit colonial. It's very much my style. Graveyard's more mine. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sitcom idea in that somewhere. Oh, um, well, actually, well, I think one thing I was asked is if we were ever going to do a show on musical shows. And I think that would be a disaster because we have such incredibly different musical taste. On the flip side of that, we could crow by the IT crowd episode in there. We could do Eurovision. Oh, fuck no. Right, no. Well, I'm gonna not a, not a song contest, but some of the sitcoms around Eurovision. So the My Lovely Horse episode of Father Ted, Piff Paff Prophet episode of The High Life. I'm sure there must be others. There's been something Eurovision-y fairly recently. Draw or the I've got a DVD with all of the first 50 winners of the Eurovision Song Contest. We could just sit and watch that. How delightful. I'll be in a coma on Valium asleep. <laughs> well, you just wake me up when you're finished. Oh, I've got loads of old grey whistle tests of Susie and the Banshees. Wouldn't that be fun? Whispering Bob Harris. Anyway, the running time's extending for no reason whatsoever. We'll be back in a fortnight with uh, the next edition. Whatever that turns out Whatever to be. Whatever that turns out to be. Thank you for listening, guys. See you I later. Know. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.